Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we record this episode, we're coming to the end of another unseasonably hot June with temperatures topping 30 degrees centigrade. Wildfires in Canada have caused air pollution, not just across the neighbouring US, but here in Europe. And in the UK, our sunsets are spectacular to observe because of the effect of the smoke high in the atmosphere. Beautiful, but immensely worrying. Everywhere we turn, the climate and the planet are shouting out at us that we need to change, to act now before it's too late. And yet business and the commercial world continue as if nothing was happening. The Western economies focus on the drive for growth, with the current political obsession on both sides of the argument advocating growth as a way of preventing recession. If growth drives climate change, what is the solution? Up till now, few voices, such as our only Green MP and previous podcast guest, Caroline Lucas, have challenged the accepted norm. But now we are hearing from different voices, the scientists, academics and journalists, the quiet radicals who are becoming more vocal, more visible and more insistent in their calls for action. Today, we turn to a profession that has the reputation of being establishment, conservative and slow to change, the law, to hear from a solicitor and a barrister as well as a young legal activist. What responsibility does the law have for climate change action? Can lawyers really create change and if so, how? A recent report from the Law Students for Climate Accountability identified five of the the UK's top law firms as being responsible for over £285 billion worth of fossil fuel transaction work. A staggering statistic. But what does it mean and how do we understand this in the context of businesses setting net zero targets? To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Alex Rhodes. Alex is a partner and head of purpose at the law firm Mishcon Dorea. As well as over 15 years of legal and global consultancy experience, Alex is founding CEO of the charity Stop Ivory, head of the Secretariat to the Intergovernmental Elephant Protection Initiative, and chairman of the Tusk Trust. In 2018, ZSL, the zoo, named him its Conservationist of the Year in recognition of his work supporting African governments in combating the illegal ivory trade and in elephant conservation. Alex, a very warm welcome to Planet Pod. Amanda, thank you. Delighted to be here. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast my second guest, Paul Powsland. Paul is a barrister and activist who specialises in upholding the rights of environmental activists to protest and protect the natural world. And he uses environmental law and regulations to defend trees, rivers and wildlife. He founded Lawyers for Nature and is a boat dweller and has campaigned tirelessly to protect and restore not only the river he lives on, but for the rights of boaters and other traveller groups. Paul, hello and thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thanks a lot. Good to be here. And my third guest is Haley Zarnick. Haley, having graduated from the University of Alabama, is the first US National Director of the Law Students for Climate Accountability, supporting the committee and student organisers as they build a movement for change. Haley coordinated and edited the Carbon Circle report that I quoted from earlier. Haley, a huge welcome and a special thanks to you as you're joining us down the line from the US. I know it's very early in the morning. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. So as with so many podcast discussions, this is a big topic and I know it's hard to to think about where we begin, but I wondered if we could start with some context. So Haley, could I ask you to kick us off and tell us a little bit about the report from the Law Students for Climate Accountability and what prompted you to do it and what are the sorts of things that you found? Sure. So I'll 
back up and give a little bit of context about how we got started in the U.S., which is that there had been a, a wave of protests against the firm Paul Weiss for the representation of Exxon. Um, and students had had realized that they got a lot more attention as law students protesting than, say, uh, you know, someone who has to go throw soup on a Van Gogh for anyone to pay attention. Um, and so in order to figure out where to go from there, they created the first law firm climate change scorecard um, because there was no information about what what work other law firms were doing for fossil fuel corporations. Um, and so that scorecard was specific to the Vault 100 uh, firms in the U.S., and it looked at lobbying, litigation, and transactions. And so it evaluated each firm based on how much work they did across those three categories for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and again, that got a lot of attention because there was no information and folks were really hungry um, to understand what was going on um, in terms of how the legal industry was was fueling the climate crisis. So over time, we've been able to get connected with uh, a bunch of uh, awesome lawyers in the UK, like Paul, um, and, and grateful to meet you now as well, Alex, um, who have been really interested in seeing this work move forward. And so we were able to do a UK version. And we found that the availability of data is just different. Um, and so we've got different categories. Um, in the UK, we looked at transactions again, um, and, and you cited the over, overarching statistic at the top, um, which was, again, staggering. Um, but we were also able to look at arbitration. So investor state dispute, dispute settlement um, is a category that we didn't look at in the US, but that is quite large in the UK. Um, and we specifically looked at cases where firms were helping fossil fuel corporations uh, sue states. Um, generally speaking, that's over uh, their their profits being uh, diminished by environmental regulations. Um, and so they, they sue the state uh, to try and recoup their profits. Um, so we consider that quite, quite exacerbating uh, to, to climate change to allow corporations to push back against these uh, regulations and, and recoup profits that really and truly represent um, the cost of the externalities that they've never taken into consideration that we all we all have to bear. Um, so that was a, a new category for us. Um, so that's uh, how we how we broke down the the UK reports. Quite different, um, and we didn't do it in a scorecard format um, because we didn't have the sort of clear uh, Vault 100 firms. Um, instead, we looked at the firms that were doing over a billion dollars in fossil fuel transactions over the five year period that we looked at. Um, so that's a really brief overview. I'm happy to go into more detail. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say it's been really, really exciting to see folks like Paul already start to use that uh, data to inform their organizing in the UK. And we're, we're looking forward to continuing to do research. OK, that's really interesting. And we've got some big numbers there. So can I just for the benefit of listeners who might not be lawyers or might not be knowledgeable in this space. Um, so you looked at a five year period and you looked at the total value that those firms had earned working on behalf of those fossil fuel companies. Or is it that you were looking at the value of the actual piece of work? OK, right. Yes. So we don't have the data on their profits. Um, so, for, for okay. instance, we look at lobbying in the U.S. The federal lobbying data that we have is directly the profits that they're making. Mm -hmm. And so that's the number that we use. But the data that we have on the transactions isn't the profit the firms are making. It's okay. the value of the transaction as a whole. And so that's just the number that we have to use because that's the okay. data that we have. And so that's useful context, I think, for folks that are looking at the scorecard or the report um, is that you'll see, you know, the lobbying data is in the millions and mm. the uh, transactions data is in, you know, the, mm. the billions or the trillions. Um, and that, that's what accounts for that difference. Um, 
in part, okay. and then also in part, of course, firms are doing okay. a lot more usually uh, transactions than they are doing lobbying. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's the total the total value, which is slightly different from the way we evaluate the others. Okay. Now, now I'm not a lawyer, but I would say that those two measures that you used are actually quite different in some ways, because I can mm-hmm. see that they're very clear, you know, the numeric financial piece of data about, you know, this is how many billions um, have happened in transactions is quite different, both as a, as a form of measurement, but also perhaps ethically from, from looking at a firm that is supporting a fossil fuel company to take a country, when you say states, take a t- country or a legislative body to court to say that you've diminished our profits. Now, the one, the second one for me sounds absolutely poor. I have to say, I'm quite shocked, really. That that that, that, that I mean, I re- I realise everybody has representation, right to representation, but I'm quite shocked that that this is such a widespread activity. And I think that is, we could all put that in a in a category over here and say, well, yes, actually, that sounds like a real challenge. We should really talk about that. But but in terms of of companies acting for fossil fuels. Is there not an argument to say that that you know that business needs to be done and 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 therefore the the lawyers need to act on their behalf? Well, there that is certainly an argument that gets made, <laughs> um, and I think our perspective is that we are are existing in a legal system in which fossil fuel corporations have endless access to representation, and the communities that are harmed usually have none. And if they do, they're they're facing a tremendous uh, difference in in the number of lawyers. Um, so if you look at the cases that these fossil fuel corporations are engaging on, you will see um, usually a dozen plus lawyers, um, and that's just the folks that are are on the actual paperwork. It's not the folks that are that are doing research behind the scenes. Um, and it's similar for the transactions that they're doing. So from our perspective, uh, you know, these fossil fuel projects are clearly directly scientifically tied to the devastating effects that we're facing. And they don't get going without lawyers who are writing the contracts, arranging the financing, making sure that they are not held responsible for any harms that are done later on. Um, and so we we think it's an untenable situation for lawyers to continue doing that work and particularly to continue doing that work when, uh, you know, the, the people on the other side have so little access to representation. Okay. Alex, I'm sure you've got thoughts about this as you're in um, the more, I'm going to turn to Paul in a second, but you're in the more kind of corporate law. How do you respond to to the sort of comments that Haley's been making? Um, Thank you, Amanda. Look, I think think the work that Haley's doing is incredibly important. Um, We're in a position where a whole raft of things that we didn't believe mattered or that we didn't, our, our, our economies didn't believe mattered suddenly do matter and they matter increasingly quickly and of course as is the human condition we left it very late in the day um and so these things don't matter in terms of what is going to happen as a consequence but things are happening right here right now right under our feet um not only are they happening um in the most acute sense to communities of who are far far away from the financial centers and the legal centers of the world but they're also happening in a very proximate, immediate way, um, to, to 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 those to those parties and those players. Part of the reason why I think what Haley's doing is so important is because I am a lawyer, and and I work in a law firm. Um, I spend a lot of my time working with colleagues in the industry, and more widely, uh, asking the question: What is the relevance of the law, and what is the relevance of lawyers and law firms? 
uh, and, and lawyers in private practice and elsewhere um, to to these issues. So that's that's the first part. The second part is that, of course, it's not necessarily quite so easy. Um, and and Amanda, you, you know, you 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 raised the question, and I and I and I like Haley's response to it. Um, there are, I suppose, uh, perhaps there are two different things that we can think about. One is the challenge of the system that we are in. And the second is um, the challenge of uh, escaping that. Uh, um, and, and in terms of that second part, it's a question of how people should operate within the system that we're in. So Haley made clear the, the, the question around the costs of externalities. And, and, and the reality is that um, we have been having a free ride. We have been kidding ourselves because we've been eating the platform that we've been standing on for years and years and years um, and, and, and assuming that that's for free. And of, course it's, and of course it's not. But we have been doing that for such a long time that all of our systems um, are built around that, that assumption. Our legal systems, our economic systems, um, our business practices. And in terms of how do we go forward from here, I, I believe that one of the major challenges is not um, how do we imagine or devise new ways of living and operating, but how do we escape from the old ones that we are still operating within? Um, and, 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 and in that, I think that is very exciting for lawyers because I think that's where lawyers can really come to bear or should come to bear. Um, and, and, and that means that lawyers need to be looking at the questions, uh, two of which Haley raised, but there are more, around access to representation and equality. <clears throat> access to the law is, is fine. You can have equal access to the law. But if not everybody is able to access it equally, that is a very major problem. Um, and that gives rise to the second of Haley's problems, which is to do with equality of arms. If, if you can buy bigger guns, then even if you can both go and stand on the battlefield, one is at a disadvantage as against the other. So that, that is where we are. And I think it's useful against that context then to think about questions of should lawyers act or not act. Now, as a solicitor, of course, I'm I'm perfectly free to decide I want to act for someone or I don't want to act for someone. I need to take into account my my duties, my professional duties. I need to take into account the um, impact uh, of my my actions on, you know, in, 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 with regard to the rule of law. Um, and, and for me personally, that means that I do just have to think a little bit about how much do I believe in the system and, and, um, and, and how much do I think I have agency within the system uh, as, as, a, as a professional. But having set that first part out, um, the, to the question of should lawyers act or not act on, on these things, I think that law firms need to move from the age of instruction to the age of anticipation. We, we, we live in a time where um, everybody has to look at their, their role 
and and how they relate to these big issues that are out there. And in 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 business, that means that you have to look at how you engage with your stakeholders. You have to look at what you expect of your suppliers. You have to think about how you apply finance. Um, and and as lawyers, I think we have to ask ourselves the same questions. It is it is, uh, in my view no longer the case that lawyers can stand on the touchline and say, oh, well, we're just here to be instructed by our clients and we should do what we like. Because we have responsibility and we have agency. I'll tell you something else. We also just have skin in the game because guess what? We're living in this world that we are. So, um, yes, I do think that um, we need to think about who we act for and, importantly, what we decide to do for them. Um, do I think that means that uh, a sort of financial services type approach of saying we're going to exclude these types of clients full stop blindly from our portfolio is going to be a sensible way? No, I don't. Um, do I think that we can deal with the big challenges in relation to climate change uh, without the heavy emitters? No, I don't. Uh, those are the bodies that have to lead or have to be involved in leading. Um, they are the they are the, the the industries that need to reform, and they need they need they need help in that, um, and, and they need advice in it. Um, there is a big difference uh, in deciding to defend uh, um, a, a company against bad behaviour, uh, perhaps. Um, and advising it, on the other hand, as to how it may wish to transform uh, its 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 business to begin to take account of things that it didn't take account of before, for example. Mm. So what what I'm hearing you say is that you know laws, you know particularly those in commercial organisations have choice, but but they don't necessarily. You're not advocating that that they should walk away from from fossil fuel big emitting plants. Now, I suspect Haley, you would say the um, the exact opposite of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, so there's a couple of things that I that I want to point out, and I very much appreciate that perspective, Alex. But in terms of of some of these corporations and how they've acted historically, we know that they've lied repeatedly on the science, that they've deceived the public for decades. They were quite aware about how their actions were contributing to global warming since the 70s. And so this is the fossil to... fuel companies you're talking about, not the law exactly. firms. Exactly. Exxon, okay. Chevron, yes. Okay. So this is um, a, 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 a parallel with, with the way that the tobacco companies behaved, for example. Is that, precisely, is that... yes. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we can certainly make that that analogy later, but um, I think it's important that we keep in mind how much active deception they engaged in when we try and assume that they're going to be part of the solution, right? Which isn't to say that we don't need to keep in mind how we transition away from the current activities, but that we have to be very, very careful in being their representatives when we know the type of uh, deception that they've engaged in in order to continue earning their profits. The other thing I would say is our data separates out the types of transaction, not just the client. Um, So we definitely understand the difference between doing a renewable transaction for a company that engages in you know extraction and helping them engage in that extraction. Um, so that's just to respond to your point, Alex, that yes, we absolutely want them to transition. And to the extent that they're doing that, um, 
then sure, we should we should be helpful. Uh, but <laughs> I don't think that that means that we should continue to do the work in oil and gas um, that they want us to do and that they have lied to the public for decades to make sure that they can continue to do um, because that's what's killing us. So I think where the common ground sits um, is um, a blanket refusal to act for oil and gas companies. And we're talking very narrowly about oil and gas companies. The conversation could apply to all sorts of uh, entities and industries. I think we're agreed, therefore, that a blanket ban or, or, or refusal to act for oil and gas companies is not sensible. I think, I think, I think that's, I think that's where we are. The question is, the question is, um, um, should, should firms think about what advice they give? And, 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 and if that's right, then the question is, how do firms best equip themselves to make those decisions? And I, and, and I think, and I think that is, um, and, I, and, and that is absolutely a live, live discussion, um, that's ongoing, um, between, uh, many, many law firms at the moment, uh, in, and, and, and indeed in quite a focused way. Um, but I think that is the, I think that is one of the key questions that uh, firms need to get on top of because unless they can understand the the impact of the advice that they're giving they can't understand their relevance to the issue and they can't make the decisions as to who to act for and what advice to give them mm. i think paul possibly would take issue with that when we're saying not a blanket ban is that fair paul and then, and it's fair to say that you represent a very different bit of the law so maybe for the benefit of, of, of listeners you could just explain how your work is different from the sort of work that Alex does at Mishkal. I think your summary, Alex, was, um, I think it gave two extremes, but not the actual middle. I think there's something in between saying we're not going to act at all for oil and gas companies versus saying we're going to act for them, but we need to be careful about what advice we do. It's, and I think Haley drew attention, but I think it's worth doing it again. It's about what work we are acting for them. So we're not saying you can never work for um, a company that does oil and gas because they might do some good things around renewables. What we're saying is, um, well, this is what I'm saying, this is the group that what lawyers are responsible, the group I'm part of are saying, is that we refuse to act for new oil and gas transaction work. So yeah, if, if BP wants to open a new um, solar field or a new wind turbine field, great. But we, in all good conscience, cannot facilitate them to open new oil and gas um, fields in the year 2023, knowing what the consequences of that are. And the consequences are, as all the scientists tell us, uh, mass death, uh, particularly in the global south, but also in other parts around the world. Minimum tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions, possibly billions will die if we do that course of action. And therefore, it's morally unconscionable to do that work. So the, the lawyers are responsible declarations. That's the group I formed. I think it's over 150 lawyers have now signed this declaration saying we won't um, assist with new oil and gas work um, and nor will we prosecute climate climate protesters. But you don't have the right to choose, do you? Because as a barrister, you're governed by this rather archaic notion of the cab rank principle, which means that you just have to accept the piece of work as it comes through the system. Is that right? Is that why partly why some of your colleagues are so... Um, troubled by some of the things you're saying? Part, partially, yes. Yeah. So just, just to be clear as well, the cab rent rule does not apply to solicitors. And so every solicitor 
can make that choice to not engage in work that will lead to the deaths of millions of people in the global south. And therefore, every single solicitor who continues to do work that opens new oil fields in 2023, knowing what that will lead to, is knowingly causing such death and taking large sums of money in order to do so. I think that's a moral disgrace and they should stop doing so. Um, with regards to barristers, yes, I'm bound by the cab rent rule. Um, although, interestingly, the, the Bar Standards Board ruled that just signing the declaration, which is what I did, is not a breach of my professional obligations. Um, which So any, anyone is able to sign that declaration. Um, uh, but that if I refused a brief from an oil company, then that's when the um, when the breach would come in. I actually would quite like one of those firms to try and instruct me because I really like the opportunity to say no. Um, and that, and, and let me be clear. What would well, I, I, I would say no. And then the Bar Standards Board would take what action it wants to. And I would be proud, like all other climate protesters around the world, to, um, to, to do that action. We, we are all going to have to sacrifice things to end the fossil fuel industry, which is one of the richest and most powerful industries that has ever existed. But we need to end it. And everyone needs to play their part. And I would be very, I'd be very proud to do that form of action and to take the consequences that were visited upon me for that. Okay, I'm having I'm I'm having trouble reconciling some of this because I'm I'm looking at your figure of 585 billion, Haley, and I'm thinking, can that be all new work? I mean, there isn't, you know, here in the UK, I know there's talk of us opening a new oil field, but 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 there aren't that many new oil fields surely being opened around the world, and there aren't that many new. I mean, you know, there are new gas plants, but there. So I'm just on new new drilling or new mines. So some of that money must be coming from continuing to work on existing projects, surely. And if some of that money is coming from working on existing projects, you know, it's an easy, it's a relatively easy win to say, no, I won't start, I won't work on anything new. I, you know, and I'll only work on the green bits of a big oil company, but I'm still contributing to that oil company's profits. And we know that they're still making huge profits from 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 mining and from oil exploration. So, so, so surely some of what we need to say is actually we shouldn't be doing any of those transactions if we want to be truly radical. Right. And, and that's why we've framed our data the way that we have. Um, so we certainly think that we can go further than just saying, well, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't do new projects, which many, many lawyers are continuing to do. Um, but also we should phase out the existing projects. And so we have a climate pledge for firms that ask them to do just that. Number one, don't take on any, and, and in this case, when I say new, don't take on any new clients for that firm. Um, and number two, phase out their existing uh, fossil fuel projects. Uh, do you give them a time scale to do that? And have you had any firms who've taken up that pledge? Yeah. So the time scale that we've uh, included is 2025 uh, okay. because we know that the timeline that we have is quite short. Um, and in fact, that we've already exceeded um, quite a lot of the benchmarks that mm. uh, we've, we've put in place. Um, so that's the timeline that, that we've chosen. Um, we have had firms take the pledge. We've not yet had Vault 100 firms take the pledge. So those are the firms that we rank. Um, okay. We are hopeful to get our first Vault 100 signatory this year. That's our big goal. Okay. Law students have a lot of power because they're sought out by these firms. And the firms that are doing massive amounts of oil and gas work are not only doing massive amounts of oil and gas work. So the students that they are attracting are not only students that say, you know what, I really want to go help Chevron, you know, create some, you know, new pipelines, right? Um, and so our goal in the long term is to move students and hopefully clients as well 
um, away from the firms that are doing this kind of work. And if we can get a large number of firms, not all of them, but a large number of firms to say, we're not going to do that, do that work, then it becomes much easier to impact the recruitment pipeline and impact the number of clients they have that are willing to, to go to those firms. And so I'll use an example from the US, um, which is that Jones Day got a tremendous amount of flack for representing Donald Trump as he was engaging in increasingly ridiculous lit- litigation. Um, their reputation has suffered tremendously. And I will tell you, I have talked with many of my peers about Jones Day um, and they don't want to go work there. Um, and so they have had a tremendous hit to their recruitment pipeline. That's what we want to see. Um, and, and we think that has the a tremendous potential to transform the legal industry and and push us in the direction of climate justice. And we can still have firms that hold out for much longer. Um, but ultimately, we want to make that untenable. I, I really I really agree with Haley that, that that students and particularly law students are one of the key ways that we can have influence over the work that law firms are doing. And I think law is one of the key supporting sectors of the fossil fuel industry that can be targeted. And I think a lot of the fossil fuel industry knows they're doing an evil thing and they don't really care. But I think law firms like to lawyers like to think of themselves as good. They don't they don't want to go to fancy parties and have people turn their back on them because they're causing the deaths of people in the global south. They don't they don't want to. They're not used to it. And I think if that started, they would very quickly start to change their behaviour. And if, if anyone out there and is in fancy is doing something or helping to set up a scheme that would, I think, have a really massive impact, I think direct advertising to law students, telling them about the work these firms are doing and urging them not to join could have very quick impacts upon the legal profession. Paul, do you think we're in danger of being a little bit privileged in this conversation? I mean, law students are at the top end of the academic scale, um, particularly, I guess, in the States. It's extremely expensive to get a law degree. It's very expensive here to be able to, to afford to do one. You come out of university with a debt. You know, there are thousands, millions of jobs that are engaged in those wider fossil fuel businesses from the guy working in the, in, you know, in the petrol forecourt right through to the guy on the rig and the, you know, the people supporting and the threats to those economies. Do you think we're just being a little bit privileged by saying, oh, well, you know, you can choose to work somewhere else and it'll have a massive impact? Well, I think in terms of privilege, I think privilege comes with responsibility. And actually, I've always been, I've always marveled at the fact that some of the most uh, hard-working, intelligent people in our society are actively working towards its collapse. And those people should all, they are, they are. And I look around my profession thinking, what are you doing? Your children will not like the money you're giving them, you're earning at the moment. They will look upon your money and the way you've earned it with disgust in the same way that people now look upon money that their ancestors got from the slave trade. They will not appreciate you for destroying their future. And we need to turn your incredible skills, your intelligence, your hardworkingness towards actually turning this ship around. In terms of privilege as well, you know, I I often hear this argument saying, oh, you know, students can't, you know, necessarily choose where they want to go. I'm from a working class background. None of my family were lawyers. I was the first in my family to go to university. I paid for my own way through uni via part time jobs. I now earn between a tenth and a thirtieth of what other lawyers earn who choose to go and work for the fossil fuel industry because I will not put fluff my own nest earn loads and loads of money within my within my own for, for myself by causing the deaths of people elsewhere in the world and hastening the collapse of our society that course of action is abhorrent to me and i believe that everyone can choose that course of action um i, I do think that is open to everyone but what about the sh- 
What about reshifting the economy, though? Because if we're going to do that, if we're going to take out a large, I mean, and I, I know colleagues of, of yours, certainly colleagues in private practice law firms, who say we live in a fuel-based, an oil-based economy, you know, even the glue that the protesters are using to glue themselves to the road is made of oil, you know, extreme example, but I have heard a lawyer say that, you know, if we live in an oil-based economy and we shift away from supporting oil and fossil fuels almost overnight, which is, I think, kind of what you're advocating, we need to stop now, Um what are the implications for the people who are part of that wider economy? Um, we're not, we're not, no, no, no one's saying overnight. The whole point about just stop oil, for instance, is we need to open no more new oil fields. And then we have a conversation about how fast we ramp it down. But okay, no so that's about our phasing down, phasing out. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the point is, to go back to the point that's made earlier, at the moment we are carrying on with our foot to the, you know, uh, our, pedal, uh, our pedal to the metal, as it were, full full force into the oncoming catastrophe. And because of the power and wealth of these firms, we are barely making any effort at all to stop burning oil and gas because it's so profitable to them. And I repeat, the most intelligent people and some of the most intelligent people in our society, which is lawyers like to think of themselves as that, need to be working towards its salvation, not towards its destruction, and at least trying to turn things around. And just saying, well, we're, we're an oil based society um, and someone's going to earn this money anyway. So I'm going to help uh, hasten that destruction by continuing to pump more oil is, to me, a, a moral obscenity. I don't believe that people go work on oil rigs because they don't believe in climate change or they're excited to you know, destroy the future for their children. Um, I know for a fact that there are people in Louisiana who are working on oil rigs who have watched their homes disappear underwater. Those are not people who do not believe in climate change. They are not people who want to see what's happened to them happen to other people. They are people who need to feed their families. Um, and certainly we cannot leave them behind. So I, I just want to make that clarification is that I don't think that this responsibility that we have as privileged people in this conversation extends in the same way to everybody who touches oil and gas in, in any way whatsoever. Um, and I think we're still figuring out how do we bring those folks into the conversation? How do we ensure that they don't get lost? Because that's unacceptable. Um, and at the same time, because we occupy this particular space, because we're lawyers and law students, I think we need to encourage folks to understand their own agency. Because what does happen very often, um, particularly for law students, is I think it's such a hierarchical profession that you can believe for your entire career that you really don't have any power to change anything. All you can do is go into the courtroom and do your best and, and make that money. But the partner's really going to make the decision. The associate's really going to make the decision. Your client's really going to make the decision. And you don't have any agency. Um, and that's a lot of what we want to change is, is, is to say, no, the fact that you're a law student, the fact that you're a lawyer means you have a tremendous amount of power and influence. And we must use that to do something different. Fantastic. Thank you, Haley. That is a brilliant note to end on. And I, and I think you're right. And I think actually what we've got across this conversation is a lot of, a lot of shared ground, actually, and a lot of commonality, um, um, which possibly doesn't make for such good radio, but it certainly makes for a better world. So I'm very grateful to you. And I'm encouraged to think that, that, that we've got, you know, such strong, powerful, articulate voices advocating for us across these different aspects of the profession. So thank you very much. Um, Alex and Haley for being with me and uh, um, and and thank you Haley to all your colleagues for the work that you've done I know that the report here has caused a bit of a stir but a bit of a stir is probably no bad thing we'll be back again soon um, you've been listening to Planet Pod thank you and goodbye thank you thanks so much thank you you've been listening to Planet Pod we'd love to hear from you so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media 